You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. I suspect that from the noise level in the sanctuary during our time of remembering that most of us have storm stories to share. Personal histories, moments when we came face to face with the overwhelming power of nature, snow and ice storms, tornadoes and hurricanes, tsunamis, thunderstorms, lightning strikes. I grew up in southern Illinois, and as a child, if I wasn't standing out on the porch watching with wonder as the sky turned green, indicating an approaching tornado, then we were sheltering in place in the hallway in the middle of our home. There are many films with storms as a major thematic point, but I have to tell you that one of my favorites is the classic film Key Largo. Directed by John Huston in 1948, starring Humphrey Bogart as a World War II vet who's visiting the family of a buddy who died in the war. Lauren Bacall in all of her beauty and glory is the widow of Bogart's friend. Lionel Barrymore plays her father-in-law who's in a wheelchair. And the great Edward G. Robinson is masterful, of course, as a mob boss, Johnny Rocco whose gang has taken over the family's small hotel on Key Largo. And suddenly all of them find themselves trapped at the hotel by an oncoming hurricane and the threatening storm and the close quarters in the hotel. And bit by bit, the characters begin to unravel. The lights flicker and the electricity goes out and they're all downstairs together. And at first they try to ignore the storm, There's singing, there's drinking and playing of cards. But as the storm gathers strength outside, they can't. And the impending threat of the storm starts to reveal the true nature of each of the characters. Their fears and insecurities, their kindness, their courage, their cowardice. And while the storm roars, Johnny Rocco is pacing the floor and his panic is growing. There's sweat on his brow and Lionel Barrymore just sits there and with his amazing voice starts to tell tales of previous storms. Of one that hit the island with 200 mile per hour winds and tidal waves 12 feet tall and of 800 people being washed out to sea and it's too much for Johnny Rocco. And a window crashes inside and he pulls out his gun as if he could shoot his way out of this storm. But he can't. Storms are mesmerizing, frightening at times. They're awe-inspiring. Sometimes they're even beautiful. 
the satellite images of the remnants of the enormous ocean typhoon that's battering Alaska this weekend are like that. They're both terrifying and transfixing. Scientists say that the ocean waves off the coast of Nome topped 60 feet on Friday. And last night, I don't know if you saw it, but the National Weather Service posted, uh, tweeted a picture of the storm and said the storm was so big that it would take about three hours for the sun to set over the entire storm. Even with satellite photos, it's difficult to wrap our minds around such great size. And these massive storms have been so far atypical that far north in the Bering Sea but sea surface temperatures along the coast of Alaska have been at or near record highs recently, and we know that warming ocean temperatures from climate change are increasing the likelihood of more storms of this type and magnitude in the area. In stories and movies, though, storms are rarely only storms. They serve to disorient the characters that makes them vulnerable, exposes their weakness, and storms are often seen as a time of trial. When we ask, will our hero survive? Will he triumph in the face of adversity? Storms in the biblical text are no different. There's Jonah who offers himself as a sacrifice to be thrown overboard to calm a storm and is swallowed by a great fish. The Apostle Paul is shipwrecked, and those storms in his story serve as both challenge and plot point along his travels. We find stories of Jesus calming storms in three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and the one I read from this morning, Luke, each one with its own variation. And I think we could say that we find them strange stories, these miracle tales they were written to showcase Jesus' power over the natural order. But with our modern sensibilities, we're not quite sure what to do with them and how to understand them. We do know that storms force us to confront our lack of control. As we helplessly watch weather reports or airports close and our plans must change, or when we see that the sandbags are failing or the trees fall. We all have storm stories. Storms reveal our vulnerability. Johnny Rocco can't shoot his way out of a hurricane and our lack of control exposes for us our frailty. Storms can strip away our shelter, take away our access to clean water, and as our vulnerabilities are exposed, the dangers mount. Today, Puerto Rico is under a hurricane warning. This tropical storm, Fiona, continues to gain strength heading towards the island. It was only five years ago this month that the Category 4 Hurricane Maria hit the island, causing the largest blackout in U.S. history, with 80% of the power lines on the island knocked out. And even today, the island's power grid infrastructure remains fragile five years later. I suppose it's a little ironic that September is Disaster Preparedness Month. Did you know that? 
And we're reminded to make or update our family plans in case of emergencies and restock our home emergency kits. And preparing for disasters is important. It can make a difference when tragedy strikes. But we know disasters shake our sense of normalcy as we come to terms with just how little control we have over our lives in the face of overwhelming events. But at the same time, storms underscore our connections to one another, sometimes with simple things like human presence and encouragement. In the middle of the storm, we may not all have Julie Andrews singing for us raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens to calm our fears. But we can find comfort in the kindnesses of neighbors and strangers who open up their homes or staff shelters who share backup generators or water supplies or donations. You may remember that after Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico, Chef Jose Andres and his nonprofit World Central Kitchen fed Puerto Ricans nearly four million meals. His nonprofit began after the 2010 earthquake in Haiti and has now provided over 200 meals around the world. We've seen them in eastern Kentucky recently, partnering with local nonprofits and volunteers initially to provide meals and to deliver food. And now they're still around here sponsoring free farmers markets, offering locally sourced food and produce to those hit by the flooding. Storms can reveal the best of who we are as human beings, as neighbors and strangers, reach out in empathy and with kindness. In our gospel story, the disciples are along with the ride, it seems. They've been following Jesus, but it's his idea to go across the lake. Now, however, they are on their home turf on the waters. They've sailed the Sea of Galilee many times before. They know the way, they know the waters, how they become choppy in the middle, how the shoreline looks, which way the winds tend to blow in. This is their territory. When they're in their boat, they know how to react to the waves. They know what it feels like to navigate the waters. For years, they've repaired this boat. They've cared for it. They've trusted it. And as they make their way across the waters, Jesus drifts off to sleep. We can imagine he's tired. He's been dealing with crowds and teaching. And while Jesus is asleep, a storm comes up suddenly and the boat takes on water and all of Jesus' friends begin to panic and they wake Jesus up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Can you feel it? Any sense of control that they may have had being out on that familiar water is now gone with the storm. And they're overwhelmed by their helplessness. They're so vulnerable in this little boat They've gone out and surrounded by all that water. Jesus rubs sleep from his eyes. He looks around. He rebukes the wind and the waves. And suddenly a calm settles all around them. And Jesus looks at them and asks, where's your faith? And rather than being reassured with the calm waters, the stillness in the air, Jesus' presence with them 
those friends of Jesus are both still afraid and amazed, asking, who then is this? In the Gospels, you see Jesus' silencing or rebuking of the storms doesn't immediately lead to the disciples' faith. Instead, they're astounded by the power that they see him wield, and they ask the question, who then is this? that he commands even the winds and the waters and they obey him, which may seem a bit odd to us. But in the ancient world, miracles weren't proof in and of themselves of much at all. Instead, a miracle invites reflection from those who witness it. And it points to possibilities. Possibilities of God's presence and work in their midst. The possibility is there for those disciples that Jesus could just be another in a long line of miracle workers. Nothing more, nothing less. They don't know. They lack wisdom or insight, which means they don't have the understanding that they need to know who's in the boat with them. Storms, be they... Storms in the natural world or the metaphorical storms which come over us at different parts of our lives as we are rocked by loss, disruption, grief, or tragedy. Those storms that shake our sense of control, expose our vulnerability, and reveal our interconnectedness. In our poem from the book of Job, storms do one more thing. They reveal a wisdom which is hidden. The poet writes, and wisdom, where does it come from? And where is the place of insight? It is hidden from the eye of all living. And then the poet goes on to imagine God searching the earth, measuring the forces of the winds, weighing out the water from the downpours, probing the storms, investigating the dramatic gales. It's another engaging image for us of the divine. Just last week we considered the image of God as a divine midwife to living creatures, and today's reading pictures God as a scientist, collecting data on storms and their power, their reach, and their impact in the world. And as God the scientist pours over the complexities of the storm, God is discovering and appreciating something precious that is revealed. God interacts with the storms and undercovers wisdom and then points it out to humanity saying, fear of the master that is wisdom and the shunning of evil is insight. I would argue that we as a global community are in the midst of a great storm. The evidence is unmistakable. Human influence on our climate system is unequivocal. We have been experiencing disruptions to our climate that are unprecedented. Like God and Job, we've been measuring the forces of the winds, the increased storms, the devastating flooding. Climate change is affecting the frequency, the severity of storms, of flooding, of droughts, of fires. They've made, it's made changes in precipitation patterns. 
And as a result of these changes in our world, we're beginning to recognize the results affect income inequality, migration, refugees. The question remains, however, if we will gain wisdom in the midst of this storm. Will we find wisdom in the fear of the master and in the departing from evil? In the Hebrew scriptures, the fear of the Lord, that phrase holds within it connotations of reverence and respect. In his wonderful little book, Reverence, Renewing a Forgotten Virtue, Paul Woodruff suggests that reverence, quote, begins in a deep understanding of human limitations. And then he goes on to define reverence a little later as, quote, the well-developed capacity to have the feelings of awe, respect, and shame when these are the right feelings to have. We are at a moment in our history in which reverence is hard to come by, and instead, cynicism holds much more power in the world. This week, Fran shared with me a poem that she's been studying recently. She didn't realize it's one of my favorites. It's William Butler Yeats's The Second Coming. And in it, Yeats begins with this harrowing description of a world which has lost the capacity for reverence. He writes, turning and turning in the widened gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. How might we recover reverence? How can we cultivate a healthy fear of the Lord and awe for the sacred in our world? It begins, perhaps, in the boat with Jesus, while the waves crash around us. Dr. Leah Shade, professor of preaching and worship at Lexington Theological Seminary, invites us to understand the story of Jesus and the disciples in the storm as a parable of the kingdom of God which means that we can move beyond the initial questions of how did this happen or did this occur this way and instead ask ourselves deeper questions. What might it mean for us to consider that the kingdom of God is like waking from sleep to confront the storm? In that episode of the Vicar of Dibley, the next day after the council meeting, they wake up to the realization that the storm has taken out one of the great stained glass windows of the church. And the little parish can't imagine how they're going to be able to pay to repair this window. And the vicar helps to raise money, and they raise an enormous sum of money, and then they're also hearing news reports of a disaster, of an earthquake far away, of children dying, of families separated, of great suffering. 
and the congregation gathers in the sanctuary for the unveiling of this new stained glass window that they've been working so hard to procure. And instead, when it's revealed, it's clear glass that shows the outside and the trees outside the church. And the vicar tells them that the extra money raised to make a stained glass window is instead been given in solidarity with those who are suffering from the earthquake. Waking up to our current situation means we can no longer turn away from the warning signs. We can't just keep doing things the way we've always been doing. We can't sleep through this crisis either as individuals or as faith communities or as a nation. Up to this point, we've been too much like Peter, James, and John in the garden when sleeping while Jesus prays with heavy grief before his arrest, the disciples unable to stay awake. As people of faith in the midst of the storm, though, we are called to wake up, to stand in solidarity with those who are suffering, to recognize the threats which surround us and to speak out and to rebuke the storm with its power. If, if we can wake up, we have the opportunity to imagine the world differently, to seek wisdom in this storm which faces us, to model a different way of living in the storms of life. The time is now. May we wake up. Oh Lord, wake us up. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.